will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional and real estate enthusiast, Blandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth. Today, we have the privilege of chatting with a very experienced person in the property development game, Mark Abbott. Mark is an integral part of Ashcroft Home Team, one of New Zealand's most respected home building companies, known for his practical approach to property development. He has successfully managed numerous projects, ranging from modest backyard renovations to substantial development in the millions. We'll be dissecting some of the intricacies of some of the projects that are lucrative, uncover often overlooked details that can cost a fortune, and extract priceless insights that you can apply as an investor in your own property journey. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into the fascinating world of property development with Mark. Are you guys ready? Let's get started. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much for having me today. Awesome. So look, I've known you for years. I remember, you know, when we first got together was when I was trying to trying to subdivide my backyard and the Manorua property. And that was quite interesting because I I learned a lot just from you because you guys had this model where you guys would do a almost free drawing for people just to sort of have them see what sort of uh, what is possible in, in their site. And through that process, I learned so much about margins because you guys had like a, I wouldn't say, you know, it's not like super top spec, but not at the bottom range either. And it just didn't work in Minariwa uh, because the margins weren't there. So we did, didn't end up going ahead, but I really appreciate all the advice that you've given me. And we sort of kept in touch, you know, over the years and, you know, some, some clients that I saw would be a good fit, I would refer. But yeah, I thought today we can actually get you to share a bit more about your expertise. Yeah. Mark, can you tell us about your journey in property development? What sort of sparked your interest in this field and led you to Ashcroft Homes? Yeah, for sure. So I guess I've, I've had a reasonably interesting journey, uh, into property. Um, I'm actually a, a qualified builder. So I dropped out of high school in my final year to pursue a building apprenticeship. Um, and I subsequently worked for one builder for uh, around 10 years, uh, only building his uh, private developments. So I guess firsthand, I was uh, exposed to, to someone who was doing really well through property development. Uh, he specialized in sort of Mission Bay, St. Helier's, Remuera, really high-end stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I was quite lucky at, at quite a young and impressionable age to, to see somebody be really successful in property development. It's not Gibbons & Co, is it? Nah, nah, <laughs> it's not. It's not. Um, it's, a, it's a small private company. And through that, I, I become very interested in property development. I obviously saw what this guy was doing. I guess when you stand back, it looked like he was he was really just, just the money man. He was just paying people, um, setting everything up. He was the guy with the master plan. Uh, but he was doing really well, um, essentially just dropping into site once a day and making sure everything was ticking along. From there, you know, as I sort of got into my later 20s, um, you know, I guess I started thinking what's next after building, um, you know, being on the tools your, your whole life, you don't want to get to 50 and, you know, it's pretty hard on the body. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I started looking around Auckland for, for companies who specialized in property development. Uh, mm-hmm. Ashcroft was one of the first companies that popped up. Mm-hmm. What did I like about Ashcroft? Well, well, many things. So number one, they're they're privately owned and operated, um, mm-hmm. which I think is 
is really good. I mean, a lot of the larger building companies in New Zealand are franchised. Uh, with that comes franchise fees. You know, every house you build, you you will essentially be given franchise fees to someone. I liked how close-knit Ashcroft was. It's, it is a bit of a family. Um, we've got a very tight-knit uh, sales team, for instance. And I like their business model. Standard plans, it it's really makes it simple for people yep. to develop. Um, right from a very early stage, we, we've got a very good idea of what you might be able to do in your property. Could you expand on that a little bit? Like, So what do you mean sort of the standard plan? Like, what, What's the difference between, like, say, for example, if they went to an uh, architect versus you guys? Sure. So I guess the whole idea of a standard plan is that we've designed uh, a whole range of plans mm-hmm. uh, based on common section sizes we find in Auckland. So 15.2 meters, 16 and a half meters, 18 and a half meters wide. Uh, these are some of the, the sort of key indicators in terms of what will work on, on said properties. Mm-hmm. So we, we designed an entire range of, of plans uh, right from large family homes down to small two-bedroom terraced units that uh, essentially we know exactly how much they cost to build and we know exactly how wide they are, how long they are and what different sites they work on. For instance, if you were to give me an address, um, I can basically measure the width of the site and the length of it and give you a pretty good indication of how many of our standard units we can fit on it, Mm -hmm. which is really beneficial for people looking to get into property development. The reason being is it's a numbers game. So right from the start, I can give you a very good indication mm-hmm. of uh, number one, what you can get on the property, and number two, how much it's going to cost, including the site works and the subdivision of land. Mm-hmm. So really it, it allows us to create certainty for our clients in terms of costs, timeframes, and their expectations, right from quality to finish. It also allows us to, to gain a lot of efficiency throughout the build. You know, so we're not we're not designing houses specific for your property. Uh, we're basically taking some pre-designed, putting it on there, and builders who we use, they've built some of our designs many, many times, uh, which means that we build it quickly and efficiently. Yeah. And at a fixed price. That's that's really good. Maybe you can walk us through the financial mechanics of like a typical development project. Like how do investors generate profits from property development? What are the key financial indicators and risk factors that you need to be aware of before sort of diving into that space? For sure. So if I break that down, I guess first we'll look at the financial mechanics. Number one, we've got the land, site acquisition. A lot of your listeners may be sitting on land already, so I guess this won't apply to them, but there may be people out there who haven't secured their investment property yet. So number one, I guess, is the land. Before you buy an investment property, come talk to people like us and we can give you an idea on the developability of that property. Even if you're not intending on developing, again, Buying land that is close to services, that has the correct zoning, and that has workable widths and and lengths is very beneficial to investors, even if they don't intend on developing. Because in 10 years' time, if they want to sell it, potentially a developer might be the guy who's looking to buy it. Number one is your land, whether you you own it originally or you're looking to purchase it, obviously a big big input into the, the wider equation. Then we've got our build cost. So essentially, the cost to build the houses themselves. Uh, at Ashcroft, we do a fixed price building model, which means that the cost of the house itself is fixed in your build contract. It won't actually change throughout the course of the build. The next aspect, I guess, is the, the site works. So that's everything we have to do over and above the build itself. So obviously, we've got the fixed price build, but now you're going to need things like driveways, paths, perhaps retaining walls. We may be building uh, in areas where, where the ground isn't very stable, and we may have to pile the foundations, for instance, to ensure that the houses are there for another 50 years. So those are site works. Anything that 
isn't basically on or inside the house, fencing, all that sort of stuff, landscaping, all that comes into it. And it's often overlooked. You know, people look at the build cost of the house, but they don't necessarily think how much it's going to cost to put plants all around so that you can hit market at a, at a good price point. And then I guess the next one is, is your subdivision costs. So not every developer subdivides. Sometimes we get mum and dads who are simply looking for that rental return. But again, I always recommend my clients subdivide. For the additional money they pay, they basically increase the equity twofold, you know, right off the bat. So it's almost a no-brainer. Like unless you can sit there and say, Mark, I'm going to rent these out for the next 30 years or 50 years and then I'm going to give them to my kids – you'd have to be talking me into not letting you subdivide, basically. It's also minimizing your risk as well, because let's say if you need cash quickly, it's like, well, you can sell off the property straight away instead of waiting to subdivide, because it's not often that much more, is it? No, no, correct. So probably the biggest cost in subdivision, things like services, so public drainage. Now, there's two types of drainage. There's public and private. We have to do what's called public drainage to complete a subdivision. It's one of the requirements. Public drainage probably costs, I don't know, 10 times the price of private drainage. And the pipes are actually vested to council when the development is complete. You're basically laying council's expensive pipes. We can go in and, and save you a lot of money by not subdividing and laying private drainage everywhere. We can also pour things like driveways. Don't have to be as thick if you're not subdividing. So we can save physical costs on site, but it means in, in 10 years time, if you do want to subdivide, you're going to have to rip up all your old driveways, all the old pipes, and replace them with new ones. Often, the, the difference between subdividing and not is very little. You know, it's somewhere between 50 and 100 grand for, for a lot of people, depending on the, the scope of works. So, again, highly recommend subdividing. You're, you're creating instant equity. But the, the other thing you're doing is you're giving yourself options. You know, a lot of people um, are thinking about their financial position today. You know, I say to, to a lot of my clients, what if your financial position changes and you need to sell one of these houses individually? Subdividing gives you the option. If you don't subdivide, you end up with multiple dwellings on one title. So you're actually decreasing the uh, potential buyers. When you do go to market, you're going to find someone who wants to buy one title with four houses on it. That's not everyone. You know, that, that's a serious investor who is well-funded. Whereas if you subdivide, you could very easily sell one of those houses to a mum and dad or, or a family or a first-home buyer if you needed to gain your you're almost increasing the potential buyers for your property by subdividing. No, that's really good. I actually quite love the template build that you guys have because when I first engage you, what I learned from it was that, well, actually, I just need to find a site that I could sort of fit some of these on um, and I can sort of calculate. I remember I was like, you know, bothering you with all of the like, oh, how, how wide is this house? How, how, how much do I need to look at? Like how, how much space do you need to have in between the sites? And you gave me all of those numbers and it made me look at sites completely differently because I was just thinking, okay, how many of those Ashcroft homes can I fit on? And that's, that's what's actually helped me with the uh, second development pro uh, property that I bought in Mount Wellington. Um, and that's something yeah, it's, 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 you know, on the back of everything I learned from you. So I, I really appreciate that, right? And and I, I'm sure, like, for most people that just engage Ashcroft Homes, it's like, even if they don't build with you, they will get so much value out of it. Absolutely. And, and I can't agree with that more. I think when it comes to property development, knowledge is power. So, so like the amount of people who come to us after they've bought a, bought a property and we'll tell them, hey, these are all the issues with the property. Why don't you come and see us before you bought the property? So you're dead right, you know, just having that knowledge that a lot of us property development consultants have in and around the services, what we can actually fit on site, some of council's requirements, it really is worth its weight in gold in terms of uh, you know maximizing your returns and not 
going wrong before you've even started. Yeah. The other important aspect is that because from a financial perspective, what happens is the bank is looking for a decent margin in any project that they want to fund. And usually that margin that they're looking for is sort of like 20, 25%. So let's say we've got a house that we are going to demolish and build eight houses on it instead. If we have a very clear in value, which say, for example, we're going to sell these three bedroom houses for $1 million each, and there's going to be, you know, eight of them. So it's $8 million. And this is based on data because we'll be able to go, okay, well, what's been selling in this area? That's going to give us, you know, somewhat of an accuracy of what those houses will sell for. Then we would deduct the eight mil, uh, 25% from that. So then we would then now work out how much the cost is because with your builds that you sort of show us when I first started, it's like, well, most of them are just fixed price and we can actually calculate how much it's going to cost to build. Now we want to find sites that are, like you said, the land with services that are relatively flat. So we have less surprise in terms of when, when it comes to subdividing and the site work. From there, we go, we take 25% margin off. We now deduct all of the fixed price of the building. It gives us the exact amount that we need to pay on the piece of land. Of course, you got to deduct the site work and the, the subdivision costs. And so maybe a bit of variable in there, which is quite important, then you know exactly what dollar value you got to you got to pay on it. Yep, you're dead right. Um, and, and we can assist with that at, at quite a, a high level. So part of my role is actually drawing what we call Balkan location layouts. So I'll actually investigate and review a potential property you're looking to buy. And I'll be able to to draw a Balkan location plan showing how Ashcroft Homes can be situated and comply on the property. And from there, you know, as part of my feasibility report, I will outline um, what our building costs are today, what I expect the site works to be, and as well as what I expect the subdivision to be. In terms of, of information, information you can get for free before you go and purchase a property. It really is high value information, but you're dead right. You can actually work backwards to determine what you should be bidding up to at, at, for instance, an auction. And probably not happening as much in the current market, but a few years ago, the auctions were pretty lively, you know, so, so going in there and knowing exactly what sort of price point you need to be at and not getting pulled away in the hype of, of an auction room is really important. You know, I think... What we're seeing now is a lot of people who simply overpaid for land, you know, 18 months, two years ago, especially land that now sometimes is worth two thirds of what they paid for it, you know, so. It's definitely worth doing that exercise because I remember going back to that South Auckland build, you know, we went through the exercise, you know, paid the feasibility fee. You guys did the feasibility and then worked out all the costing. I learned so much from, you know, paying, I can't remember, something like two or two to three grand, but it was a worthy exercise because now I know exactly how much it's going to cost and uh, what things I need to watch out for. And I, I looked at it while well, my in value and memory were just didn't work out. So we just couldn't go ahead with that. I was also wanting to ask you, what would you say are the benefit with a model like that versus like, let's say, you know, you go to an architect who might customize the actual design. So I guess there's a couple of fundamental differences. So, so coming like Ashcroft, we're, we're a one-stop shop. You know, so we've got architects, quantity surveyors, draftspeople, um, planners, engineers, everyone under one roof. So what you find with with architects um, is that they often are simply just looking at the actual house um, and, and what it looks like in, in the room layouts and all that sort of stuff. You then often have to employ a planner who is looking at the zoning, the wider picture and what Auckland Council wants. And you sort of spend all this money getting your design done, your plans done, and then you get your plans and it's like, okay, great, now what next? I've got to find a builder. So say you might have 
bought land, you might be a uh, hundred grand deep with architects and planners. You still don't have any idea what it's actually going to cost you to build. And, and that's a pretty scary thought, right? So to get so far without really knowing how much it's going to cost to build. So fundamentally, we're different from a sense that, that right early on, we can give you a clear idea of what it's going to cost. We're a standard plan company. So there's sort of no, no frills. I guess to a degree, it's straightforward, it's simple, and, and it can really help novice developers, I guess, take some of the legwork out, some of the, the thinking out, and essentially allow us to manage the whole process, as opposed to a client being highly involved, going from business to business, trying to find, you know, trying to bring everyone together. You know, the clients almost become a project manager. Uh, and that's fine if, you, if you're a very experienced developer. But typically, we find that working with companies like Ashcroft leads to economies of scale, and people are able to to not go as wrong as they may go with potentially an architect. A good example, I've actually got, got a client recently who probably approached me about two years ago. They did some initial feasibility with us, uh, didn't actually sign up to concept stage or anything like that. But I think at the time I, I'd situated some Windsors on their property with some car parks, decent site in Central. Windsors is our two-bedroom plan, most popular. So we're building uh, probably, gee, around 100 of these right now throughout Auckland. I think we're building about 160 houses and like I said, probably 100 of them are Windsors. Typically what investors are building to generate greater returns is our Windsor. Sort of bread and butter, hard to beat on paper. You know, sometimes we'll get agents who say like, you know, hey, you, you're building eight, two bedrooms. It's, you know, why don't you build some some three bedrooms? The simple answer is the two bedrooms typically stack up the best on paper, i.e. you'll make the greatest return on your investment. People always want to build bigger. They, but Mark, I can build three stories here. Doesn't always mean you're going to make more money. Often you'll actually spend more money to make the same. By the time you finance that, you're actually making less money. If you were to simply do a less dense development with, say, lots of two-bedroom Windsors. There's a very important lesson that Mark sort of shared here because this is not something that only Mark says, but a lot of experienced developers, experienced architects talk about as well, is that if you were to start a new development, a lot of the time, if you just engage the architect, they have no idea what the costing is. And you often might end up overbuilding, right? You might waste a lot of floor area that is just paying extra, but it actually doesn't add any value in terms of sale price or probably not that good in terms of if you wanted more space in the house, like it doesn't work. So that's a very important one because with you guys, you guys have the builder and the architect right from the get-go. You guys have tested these builds. You guys have already built them and sold them before. So it makes it a lot easier. Absolutely. And, and got them down to a, you know, a, a very efficient design. So you won't find any wasted space, for instance, in our two-bedroom ones. We've literally uh, designed them and redesigned them a number of times to uh, make use of every single design efficiency we can for, for that house model. I'd like to know about the downside of working with Ashcroft. So we talked about the benefits, you know, obviously it's going to be like out of the box. You've got all your builds and you know what the costings are. Everything is like ready to go. What are the downside with working with you guys opposed to an architect? Sure. So we don't, we don't let people change our designs, you know, so that's normally a hard stop for some people uh, simply want to have some input into what they're building. Another downside, for instance, is, is our lack of the ability to, to design something to suit a specific site. So for instance, uh, sites that work best with our designs, long rectangular sites, 15.2 meters, 16.7 meters, 18.5 meters wide. Um, as soon as you throw a pizza slice at us, it becomes harder for us to maximize your returns compared to an architect. They can simply design something to use all that available space. Um, whereas we can't. 
So there, there are certain sites that uh, right from the get-go you may be better off uh, using an architect for, but we're very forthcoming with our, our limitations. So if you rung us uh, and wanted some feasibility done on a site that we, uh, for instance, right from the get-go, just looking at it on the maps, we can tell it's not the right site for Ashcroft. We'll be very upfront about that. Um, we don't want to waste our time just as much as we don't want to waste um, any potential clients' time. Uh, another big one is slides that have a, lo- a lot of uh, elevation change on them. Um, often architects can do like split level designs. So they will, um, you know, essentially build with the land. Um, they'll design something that, that doesn't create huge retaining walls. Um, and, and they generally do that by split level living, you know, for instance, have a garage underneath, um, deals with, you know, the back of the garage is the retaining wall. And then the next levels above, we, we simply, uh, don't, don't offer anything like that. So, but again, like I said, we're very upfront about that. We understand that um, we're not, not for everyone, but again, you know, seven out of 10 sites that, that we look at, we can uh, typically maximize uh, better than a lot of other companies out there. That's great. I wanted to unpack the comment that you made before about the two story versus three story. I think this is something that a lot of people get confused about. Like, well, I'm building more floor area. Can't I just sell more products? What are some of the downside of building three-story versus two? Sure. And really good question. So it took me uh, probably 18 months working at Ashcroft to to figure this out in my own head. Um, When I first started, you know, one of the questions I kept asking some of my colleagues was, but but we can build three-story in this zone. Why aren't we? Um, truth be told, I mean, Ashcroft's offered a number of three-story designs. Um, I was actually the, the first salesperson to sell a three-story design and that was only last year. Um, to date, you know, I believe we've only signed contracts for, for a handful of three-story projects. Um, the reason being is that it costs more to build three-story. How much more are you talking about? In terms of cost per square, I mean, I, don't quote me here, but I, I'd imagine you'd be looking at somewhere between, you know, three to possibly $500 more per square meter. And why is that? What, what's the difference? Like it, number one, your, your scaffolds all up for longer. So you've got, you've got more house vertically to cover. Scaffolding makes a lot of money. Eh? Scaffolding is, is a big part of, of any uh, construction project because you're obviously paying for the erection, but then you're renting it out weekly. Again, every week your scaffolds up, um, is increasing the cost on the project. Mm-hmm. Then on these three-story designs, you end up getting a lot of lower roofs. Um, again, lower roofs in terms of a, a construction pathway are harder to build than something without lower roofs because basically you either have to scaffold, not put the roof on and scaffold up through the framing so that you can do the upper roof, the top roof, or you have to do the lower roof first and then put your scaffold on top of that. So again, the scaffolders can't come out and scaffold the whole side at once. They're coming back in and out to, to do these lower roofs. Same with the, the roofers. You're calling them back to do a little lower roof that might be five square meters here. It makes the project flow not as well. And, and that's just one aspect. I mean, roofing and scaffold, really. Then there's the actual, I guess, structure. So if, as we build up higher, we need to support all that weight, which sometimes means increased foundations. And I believe obviously your framing probably has, has to change in terms of how close your studs are, possibly how thick your walls are to support that third level. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of things that lead to, you know, increased costs for three level builds. Um, and I'm sure there'd be many more, but, you know, off the top of my head from a, a building perspective, things like scaffolding and lower roofs are tricky to deal with, especially when you're you're trying to create efficiency and kind of have a clean run and the most efficient way to, to build a house. Are there any differences in terms of like the fire 
walls as well in, in a three and a two story? Not, not to my knowledge. I mean, we, we typically do like a standard intertenancy firewall, which is basically two 90 millimeter frames, 80 millimeters apart with a, a fire rated system between. To my knowledge, that can go up three stories. Where we do have issues uh, on the three story designs, again, is around lower roofs. So I've recently had a project where we had lower roofs on a, on a block of terraced units and uh, council approved everything, but we can't actually find skylights that are fire rated. Everything was approved, but we had to install fire-rated skylights. We can't find fire-rated skylights. We can't source them in New Zealand or Australia. They comply with our standards. Things like that on these three-story designs do become tricky. Often you've got lower roofs, you've got elevated living areas. So yes, your your fire rating becomes uh, tricky around some of these three-level designs. Yeah. It sounds like that was probably designed on an urban zone site uh, yeah so it's three level i mean you can buy under the current unitary plan you can only go three levels under urban or terraced uh you can technically do it in the suburban zone but you'd actually have to dig down a little bit due to the maximum height in the suburban zone so every development project presents its own set of trials and victories mark could you review some frequent oversights that have led to some substantial financial losses yeah perhaps in the realms of hundreds of thousands of dollars like what what have you seen what are some big big mistakes that people made for sure so i guess first and foremost you know site selection so you know i alluded to it at the start of the podcast uh choosing the right site can set you up for success or, or it can really set you up for failure so again this is the the knowledge is power um so the more you know when you're looking for sites where are the services what is the zoning um Currently, we're, we're working through upzoning or, or the MDRS, which council is rolling out through Auckland. So understanding what that means for the potential property you're buying. If you guys want to learn more about the MDRS, there is another episode in the podcast that we talk about MDRS with an architect. So definitely check that out. Yeah, and, and some really exciting things happening with the MDRS. But again, uh, they're, 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 from our assessment, we, we also believe that some sites will be more restrictive in terms of what you can do once MDRS is rolled out. So we, we are advising clients quite regularly that they are best to proceed now under the unitary plan simply because uh, if they went for the same layout under the MDRS, uh, they may have to drop a unit. Um, to account for some of the, the MDRS requirements. Why is that? Why would what would you end up so, having less? So there's a couple of things. So um, MDRS uh, and Plan Change 78 call for things such as a deep soil area. So right away they want 10% of your site to be a deep soil area uh, so we can plant trees. Um, while I'm not against that, uh, that area can't be multi-use. So it can't be outdoor living. It can't be used for driveways. Um, it basically has to be 10% of your site, and it's got dimensions, so that it has to be three meters wide as well. So chances are, the back of every site we develop uh, under some of these new changes, there's going to be a three-meter strip, the width of the site that we're not building on. So there are things like that, and, and again, this stuff's all going through uh, council at the minute. Ashcroft Homes actually made a, a number of submissions on some of these changes, but it's changes like that that, that we believe... Um, you know, some of our clients are better off not waiting for these changes and basically um, getting their, their consents approved now. Um, because once these changes come in, uh, it may actually be uh, harder to, to consent some of these projects that we're looking at now. Yeah, it just depends on sort of the site 
size. Correct. And, Correct. and, and what the clients are looking to do. Um, there, there will definitely be some people who are better off waiting for MDRS implant change 78 to come to fruition before they develop their properties. So talk me through a little bit more about, you know, purchasing of the land. Like why would that be something that might cost someone thousands of dollars? So essentially buying the wrong piece of dirt. We've seen people with very little knowledge go and buy land. It might have a nice view. It might have a really nice house now. Then they'll come and see us and say, well, we want to, you know, we bought it, there's space in the backyard. We want to build another house for our kids. And that's where sometimes the, the news is really hard to break to them that you say, well, actually, you, you've bought in the single house only zone. Um, even though your section is, you know, 850 square meters, you're only allowed one house in a minor dwelling. So yes, you can build a minor dwelling, but that's actually all you can do under the current unitary plan. So for instance, if they bought that wanting to do something right away, you essentially can't. You know, another good option is people buying property and not being aware of where the services are. Stormwater and wastewater are typically your big items. So for instance, if stormwater is 100 meters down the road, often you know, when we first look at that, I'd put a cost of that to at a hundred grand just to simply bring your stormwater up the road. Roughly, it's going to be a thousand dollars a meter. Same with wastewater. So straight away, if you buy a site that has those two assets a hundred meters down the road, you know, I can confidently say that you, you're going to spend one hundred fifty grand to two hundred grand just to get them to your site. So there's an argument that you could have spent that money buying a better site that had the services on them. The other big one is overlays. So for instance, people may purchase a property with very little knowledge around the unitary plan and some of the overlays we we get within that. So there are, for instance, aircraft noise overlays in, in some areas in South Auckland to do with the airport. They limit how many houses you can build on a site due to their section size or, or the section size you will create when you subdivide. So say for instance, if you're in the minor zone, the moderate aircraft noise zone, I believe it's 400 square meters per dwelling. So if you've got an 800 square meter site, you, you, oh sorry, it's 300 square meters in that zone. So you've got 900 square meter site, you can build three houses. Yeah. The HANA zone, high aircraft noise activity, that is 400 square meters now per zone. So you can only build two houses. Mm-hmm. So it's things like that, that people might see something there, or aircraft noise and not really think about it too much, but there's a whole lot of overlays uh, within the unitary plan that require for further reporting, more input, or have hard limits like the the aircraft noise zones on basically dwellings versus square meterage. I remember I've sent a couple of clients your way that has that exactly thing, (laughs) exact thing. So, Uh, you know, another one's power lines, never buy anything with power line overlays. Um, I mean, if you're going to buy, you can basically buy something that doesn't have that and you don't have to worry about it. Mm. Yeah. So site selection is a big one. Um, Recently, we've seen Vector becoming a bit of a, an interesting one in terms of everyone needs to provide a new Vector connection for every new housing or every new dwelling they build. Your Vector connection is about seven grand each. So say you're building 10, you're up for 70 grand. Vector at some point we'll do a report which looks at the the overall capacity of the site or more likely the nearest transformer. And sometimes they have to upgrade that transformer. That transformer upgrade is done at the developer's cost if it's required for their development. So a recent example of this is um, I had some clients who were who had engaged Ashcroft in a build contract to build their houses. I think we'd estimated about $70,000 for their connection of 77, something like that. When we got this in-depth report by Vector, they suggested that we needed to upgrade the transformer or the local network. And their initial quote was that it was going to be somewhere in the range of 350 grand. Obviously, this was a huge shock to the clients. But uh, subsequently, Vector did more investigation and, and we did essentially a, a more in-depth 
engineering report around it. And it was determined that we didn't have to upgrade the transformer and Vector's actual costs come in at 65 grand or something like that. So we we're actually 10 below our original estimate. But that's one that has, has been coming up more recently, i.e. the last 12 months. We're now sometimes advising clients, you know, hey, go talk to Vector now and pay for a report early so that you can see what the capacity of, of the local network is before you, you know, you, you risk an oddball like that, having to upgrade a transformer. The other one is replacing old pipes. So council now really keen on people replacing old pipes within their sections before they've developed. So the years gone by, we just basically built over the old pipes with works over approval, obviously. Now there's a bit of a, a tendency for council to ask us to replace those pipes. So even if, if it's an old stormwater or, or wastewater pipe that we're not even touching or tapping into or doing anything with, the simple fact that it's crossing a property and it's over 50 years old, uh, council may say, hey, you need to replace the length of pipe on your property. Now, let's say that pipe's three meters deep. Obviously, it's a, there's a big excavation that's going to have to take place and there's a cost to, again, relaying that pipe. I'm just wondering why the council is making the developer pay for that because they want more houses built, but they want the developer to upgrade the infrastructure as well. And they want the they want the developer pay, pay for everything, you know, essentially. And there are certain triggers, I believe, which is from what I've been told is around the fifty year old mark. And basically, they I guess they're trying to look a bit forwards, you know, and say that if you're going to build a house over this fifty year old pipe, you know, the good thing to do would be to replace it before you do, so that you know we've got another fifty years here. We know we're not going to have any issues. And I believe the other trigger is like asbestos pipes. So I believe they're trying to get rid of all the asbestos pipes. Off the top of my head, another big one: we don't actually need a geotech until we get into building consent. Um, so a lot of clients reluctant to pay for that because they they don't need it yet. But again, we recommend clients get geotechs right up early in our feasibility process. This allows us to see the condition of the ground, the stability of the ground, and we can advise you whether our standard slab. 3604 rib slab is compliant with, you know, or, or will work on your, your ground, basically. If it doesn't work, we might have to put some piles in or increase the, the thickness of the slab to, to support the house. All depends on what that geotech report does. So again, you know, I, I really push for my clients to get that before we sign a contract, basically, because it's really, really important in terms of understanding your foundation design and, and how much you're basically going to spend getting out of the ground. Applies to your retaining walls too, you know, any site that's that's having building or getting earthworks done on it, get a geotech early. Uh, really, really important. Another big one's client care items. So this is an interesting one. I'm obviously smiling, but right from the get-go, we get a lot of clients who want to reduce costs by taking on work themselves. So this can be anything from, hey, Mark, I'll build the retaining walls and do the earthworks, right through to I'm a sparky and I'll do the electrics. Nine times out of 10, it, they, they're not spending more money than, than if they just let us do it. So yes, there is margin on contractors we arrange, but again, we're responsible for them. It's within our build contract and our health and safety regulations. You know, so a good example is, is driveways. Often clients want to do driveways, look simple. I can just hire a contractor, come pull the driveway. One example we've had where client did exactly this and I believe they damaged like a, a chorus cable or something within the, the vehicle crossing. And there were, from memory, there's around 30 grand in fixing this cable. Now, again, if that was our contract, obviously we've got a number of insurances in place. It's totally our problem. Whereas as clients try and take on bits and pieces, they may not be aware of, of all the implications um, if something does go wrong, as well as, as you know, we use a lot of the same contractors over and over again. So we've got a good rapport with these guys. We know the quality of their work. Often when people take on the work themselves, they'll get three quotes and they'll choose the cheapest one. You know, there's a reason they're the cheapest 
quote. Um, often their, their health and safety is probably not the best or their workmanship simply isn't the best. So often we charge clients to fix client care items that they haven't been able to execute to a high standard. Oh, geez. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, after you explain all that, what sort of advice would you give to the average investor who are sort of interested in venturing into property development? I think process is, is a big thing here. So understanding the the process, you know, and like you say, in your personal journey, as you learned more about the process, things started to make sense of it. And when I say process, you know, if, if I were to put it on a linear process, um, and Ashcroft at Homes actually has a, a really good roadmap that sort of runs people through this linear process. But really, you know, it starts with site selection. So you may already own the site, in which case you can't change that, but you may not. So process or, or site selection, number one. Then number two, it's always going to be concepts or, or what can I do on the property? So, you know, how do you eat an elephant small bits at a time? You know, we don't have to on day one know exactly how much it's all going to cost, what it's all going to look like, but there's a process. Let's get bulk and location plans done. Let's see what we can fit on the property and let's get a, a, an indication of what it's going to cost. From there, you can move into, into formal concepts, um, which is getting actual design work done, surveys, um, the process we did for your property in Manurewa. And they take what I've done at a feasibility level and they draw develop concept plans essentially. And then our, our QSs and our subdivision team actually do line item costs essentially. You know, it starts with your site selection, then onto your Balkan location, and then onto your develop concept plans. And every step of the way you're creating certainty, and you're trying to reduce those risk factors. Again, knowledge is power. From there, you can move into your consents. Consenting the project and then finally, you know, signing a contract and moving into the actual construction phase. So process and understanding it, really, really important for reducing your risk. But also by following a, a clear process, you're creating certainty at every point in the journey. You're breaking it down into small parts and each part you're confirming things like, I've got a stormwater connection, I've got a wastewater connection, these are how much my retaining walls are going to cost, so on, so that you can make a very informed decision by the time you get to contract. Next thing, I guess, you know, some key indicators in terms of the wider market. So what's happening in the, in the property market, the rental market and immigration, you know. So right now there's been a lot of talk about uh, net migration figures going up. So it's being aware of all of that and being able to apply it into your property development. It takes a long time to develop property. We're not building for today's market. We're building for tomorrow's market. So understanding that creating certainty and reducing your risk through following a process, essentially. So that's really good advice, Mark. Given the market fluctuation and, you know, the varied nature of projects, like how do you maintain your focus? Like with, with the client, you know, making sure that they're like, oh man, they don't get cold feet. They don't just back out of the project. Like, you know, I'm sure some people are just concerned, like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? Like markets drop. They're looking at like everything that's changing. What what do you try and do and help these these clients? Process. So I've said it before, I'll say it again, you know, how do you eat an elephant one step at a time? So it's holding people's hand through that entire process, keeping them well informed and telling a story, you know, so keeping clients informed, you're, you're not actually necessary, you know, if you're just starting out the journey right now, you don't need to be super worried about what the property market's doing right now. You need to be worried about what it's doing in 18 months to two years time when you're actually going to market. There's a bit of storytelling, ensuring that people are following the process one step at a time, hedging their risk, creating that certainty, and then having the end goals in mind. You know, often in property development, there is great money to be made. You know, sometimes 
hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. People don't make that sort of money every day, you know, so it's getting people to see the bigger picture. You know, you, you have an opportunity here to create some amazing equity or some amazing wealth for you and your family, really having your end goals in mind. You know, why are we doing this? To make money and secure our futures. Yes, the outside inputs right now, market, interest rates, finance, all that sort of stuff. But again, that's just the here and now. Let's look at your end goals, the bigger picture. And then, yeah, creating certainty is working through, you know, to the point, for instance, with Ashcroft Homes, we can work you right up to the point where what we called Build Ready. And that is where essentially we've got an approved resource consent and you can sign a contract with Ashcroft Homes at any time. To get there, we need to go through feasibility, develop concept stage and resource consent. But once that you've gone through that process, typically costs 80 grand for a large project, probably about 60 grand for a smaller project. The ball's in your court. That consent is valid for five years. You can meet the market now. Um, you don't have to sign a contract today, but when things do improve, you're in a position to sign a contract immediately. And you'll be, what I think, one of the only people in a few years' time sitting there with houses that already hit the market. Because what we're seeing right now is, is people are sitting on their hands, which is why we're running a bit of a campaign around getting people build ready to the point where they can sign a contract, even if it's not today, so that they're in a position to really meet the market of tomorrow uh, when it comes down to it. I love that. I'd like to expand on it from a financial perspective as well, because for our side as a mortgage advisor, I think, first of all, you know, you, you talked about acquisition of the site. That's so important. That's probably like the most crucial step. And we always talk about how you can buy a site under value. You can work out some of those figures before you even make an offer. And having someone like Mark on your team is like, they'll tell you what's available on the site. So if you can buy the site at a really good price and knowing what are the big mistakes that you could potentially make like stormwater and wastewater, all our senior advisors at Mortgage HQ, they all have their own development and they will make sure that you don't make that mistake. It's like you don't just rely on just the one professional. If you've got all the professionals around you that cares about your goal and understands what are the big mistakes in those properties, that's going to be a massive help. And I guess the other thing that's really important with in terms of facing changes in the market is that in the beginning, you have to have your exit strategy because sometimes clients might just have this one solution for themselves. It's like, oh yeah, I just want to build the hold. And they don't want to change from that. But often that's really risky just to have one solution. You almost want to have plan A, plan B, plan C from day one. And that's what finance talks about. Finance worries about those things because we need exit strategies for, for the bank to be comfortable. And so that's really important to just to try plan those things out. And that's what a financial advisor can sort of help the client with. Absolutely. You know, when I first meet clients, I, you know, I essentially say to them, there's there's a few people you're going to need on this journey. Number one is a financial advisor or broker who you can, you can really trust um, because basically you guys are such an integral part in any development and especially now when finance isn't as easy as it has typically been. Having a great broker who can unlock that finance for clients is the difference between a development going ahead and, and simply not going ahead. And then, you know, obviously a good lawyer and an agent you know and trust. And if you surround yourself with that small group of people, it's setting yourself up for success when it comes to property development. Perfect. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your insights in property development today. Your experiences are truly invaluable because it taught me a ton for sure. And remember, listeners, 
Mark said this a couple of times, knowledge is power when acted up on and use these insights wisely in your property journey. And remember, if you have found value in this episode, please subscribe and share it with just one person that could benefit from it. Join us next time on Leverage Addicts as we continue exploring wealth and financial freedom. Until then, keep building, keep learning and keep creating the life you want. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Thank you very much. It's been my absolute pleasure. And uh, as always, if any of your clients uh, would like a an insight into their property or uh, a free feasibility report, feel free to email me directly, mark at ashcrofthomes, M-A-R-C at ashcrofthomes.co.nz. More than happy to assist you guys and work together with uh, Blandon to unlock the potential in your properties. Awesome. Thank you.